You can open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 19. And as you turn there, I want to draw you to a truth of Scripture. Truth is this. God has always pursued the lost. And especially those of the house of Israel. The days of God seeking out his own among the Hebrews began with the first patriarch of Israel, Abraham, who was a lost pagan in the land of Ur when God sought him out from the Chaldeans and instructed him to leave his country and to go to the land that he would show him. He promised him that he would make him a great nation. He promised him that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And from the beginning, Abraham obeyed and believed God. Genesis 15, 6 says that God reckoned it to him as righteousness. He saved Abraham. God sought and saved the man from whom all Hebrews, all Jews would trace their heritage. It should come as no surprise to us then, then when God sent his son to do his will on earth, he sent him to perform the same task, which was to seek out the lost and bring eternal life to those who would believe. What God had done for Abraham, he would also do for Abraham's children through Christ. So this morning... We're going to spend our time taking a look at one of those children, far down from the physical line of Abraham, a person who God compassionately sought through his son. And hopefully, by the end of our time together, we will discover that there's far more, this man has far more in common with Abraham than just his physical heritage. As I read to you the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19, I've entitled it, The Seeking Savior Meets the Impossible Sinner. The Seeking Savior Meets the Impossible Sinner. Please follow with me as I read, beginning in Luke 19, verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor and If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give it back four times as much. 
Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And as we go through this passage in the next several minutes, a text which I've loved for a long time, I want you to keep that last verse in your mind, that Jesus, the Son of Man, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's the theme that covers all of these verses. Now, to help us kind of break it down into smaller chunks, I've got three different sections with three different titles. You can write them down now if you want. I'll get to them again as we approach them. But this is how we're breaking down the passage this morning. In verses 1 through 4, I'm calling it the prior condition of a rejected sinner. In verses 5 through 7, the personal contact of a seeking Savior. And in verses 8 through 10, the public confirmation of a spiritual conversion. Now, all of you are looking at me like, he must be in seminary. All of those alliterations. Trust me, if you didn't get it down, we'll get it to you when we, when we approach each of these sections. But we're going to start in the prior condition of a rejected sinner, beginning again in verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. The he in this verse obviously is referring to Jesus who's moving to Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. Among all the gospel writers, Luke gives us the most information about this journey of Jesus, this last journey of his to Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 15, we read of the lost sheep, the one where the shepherd leaves the 99 to seek out the one. We also read of the lost coin where the woman rejoices at the recovery of the single coin that she has lost. We also read in Luke 15 of the lost son where the prodigal repents and is reunited with his father. And the theme of all of those lost stories is the heavenly celebration and joy when a single sinner repents. You can see how Luke is beginning to set, even in those stories, the stage for what we are going to spend our time in this morning. Luke also tells of Jesus' interaction on this road to Jerusalem with lepers and blind men and wealthy young rulers, how Jesus healed those who in faith believed and confronted those who clung to their stature and their self-righteousness. After this section, Luke is about to describe the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, which will occur within days of the closing of this story. But in order to get to Jerusalem, Jesus must travel through Jericho because he has a divine appointment with a son of Abraham. Jericho should be a familiar city to any of us who have spent any time in the Bible. It was the first city that the Israelites conquered as they made their way into the promised land from Egypt. And at the time of Jesus, it was a thriving city. It was a center of commerce where King Herod had set up a palace and was really the gateway to Jerusalem from that portion of the land. 
all Israelites who would travel to Jerusalem from that section of Israel, the eastern, even the northern and southern parts that would go through Jericho to then follow the mountain pathway up to Jerusalem. So naturally, as all good Jews at this time of year, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem and was traveling through Jericho. So verse 1 gives us our general location of where this divine appointment is going to take place. Verses 2 through 4, we are introduced to this man that he is about to meet. In verse 2, it says, There was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Now, there's a few things that we learn about Zacchaeus in verse 2. We learn his name, we learn his occupation, and we learn about his financial status. Now, can you imagine if your life was summed up in one short verse in the Scriptures? I'm not going to call on you and ask you what that short verse would be, but that's essentially what Zacchaeus has here. His life is summed up in a short verse. His name his occupation, his financial status. You would think that a lot would be left out, but there's actually more here than meets the eye. First of all, his name. Zacchaeus was his name, and it had meaning. In Israel, when your parents gave you a name, it was not haphazard. It always meant something. And believe it or not, Zacchaeus' name means clean or innocent, even righteous one, is the meaning of his name. And if you're Zacchaeus' parents, you're kind of patting yourself on the back. That's a pretty good name that we gave our boy. And you're hoping that as he grows and as he matures, he's going to live up to his name. But names are kind of tricky things. As parents, when our children are born, we have no idea what they're going to turn out to be. So to give them a name such as Righteous One is a little inherently risky. And there is no control over how that child is going to turn out. Nevertheless, that's what they chose to name their son. So what did this Righteous One turn out to be? He must have turned out to be a rabbi. He must have turned out to be a scholar, a well-known person in Israel. Well, as it turns out, he was well-known. But he was pretty notorious for things that you and I would not want to be known for. Because we find out in the next description of who he is that he was a tax collector. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't well-respected. He was a tax collector. To the people in Jericho, to the people in Israel, this profession couldn't have placed him any further away from their hearts. To be a tax collector, even at that time, was far worse than anything you can imagine if you happened to work for the IRS. Because the system was different. To be a tax collector in Palestine, 
you were the most loathed and despised traitor imaginable. You were working for the occupying Romans who had come in, taken over your land, controlling what was going on, and that's who your employer was. But it is far worse than just working for the enemy. For in this tax system, the way it worked was if you wanted to become a tax collector, you would bid on the opportunity to purchase the business. And if you won the bid, then you would enter into, a sense, a contract with the Romans in which you guaranteed to them a certain level of income from this little tax office that you were given. That gave you a lot of freedom. That gave you a lot of autonomy. That gave you the ability to not only collect what you had promised to the Romans, but the authority to collect even far beyond what they would require. Tax collectors were no less than corrupt extortionists. And when the normal people would walk up to the tax collector, there was no idea in their minds as to how that was going to turn out. They didn't know how much tax was going to be collected. And the tax collector had autonomy to be able to tax things that they may not have even been anticipating. But even being this collector from the Romans wasn't the worst part of being a tax collector. Because if you were a tax collector, you were considered unclean. You were hated religiously and socially. Anything that you touched even would be considered unclean. There's a story of a tax collector or a description of a tax collector where the religious leaders of the day described that even if he touched the handle of a staff, that handle would become unclean simply because of who he was. It was a stain that was not just yours, but extended even into your family. Couldn't enter the synagogue. You were excommunicated from religious activity. No self-respecting Jew would ever come over to your house for dinner. No one would ever darken the door of your home. In fact, they were treated almost as if they were not even Jews. And in the minds of the religious leaders, if you were a tax collector, there really was no hope for you. Because if there was ever going to be a tax collector who wanted to repent and convert, the religious leaders decided that person needed to pay back everything that they had taken dishonestly, plus 20%, to anybody that they could remember having taken it from. All of the rest of their ill-gotten gains was then donated for the common good. It was a system in which really there was no expectation that this could ever take place. Conversion was considered difficult, if not impossible, if a tax collector at any point in time wanted to re-enter into normal society. So when Jesus is described as a friend of tax collectors and sinners, it's really about the greatest insult anybody could have given him. Zacchaeus was considered to be about as far away from the kingdom of heaven 
as any Jew could imagine. And Zacchaeus wasn't just your average tax collector. There's a word in that verse before tax collector. He was the chief tax collector. He was the boss hog. He was at the top of the pyramid scheme. He was the person for which all of this corrupt money flowed to. He had a piece of all the action. He was, as a result, hated, despised, an outcast. His name would have been loathed. He had this great name, but he would have been loathed. And he wasn't just a tax collector. He was rich. It'd be one thing if you were a tax collector and you were bad at your profession, right? People might like you then. But he was good at what he did. He collected a lot of money. He prospered from his position. The term here for rich is plusios. He was abounding in material resources. It's a common word used in the New Testament to speak of these sort of people. It's the term that is used in chapter 18. You guys should be familiar with the story of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler was described with the same term. And if you trace rich in the book of Luke, you quickly discover this is not a category of person that was on their way to salvation. For Luke describes those who are rich as receiving their comfort in full in Luke 6.24. He describes them as a fool, the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. He is described as ignorant of God's priorities and his methods in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And he's described as someone who was unwilling to subject themselves to the demands of Christ in that very story of the rich young ruler. To contrast the prevailing religious thought of the day that wealth and earthly riches was a sign of spiritual blessing and favor, Jesus spoke of no such benefit. Luke spoke of no such benefit for the rich. It is why the disciples at the end of that story of the rich young ruler ask in perplexity if the rich can't be saved, those who we thought were spiritually close to God because he had blessed them, then who can be saved? They were perplexed. And it's with that statement that kind of echoes in the background that Luke describes Zacchaeus as rich. So he had a name he'd failed to live up to. He had an occupation that made him an outcast traitor. He had a portfolio that placed him squarely in the category of the spiritually blind. He had three strikes against him, and we have eight verses to go. And Luke continues in verse 3. He says, Zacchaeus was trying to see, he was seeking to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. He wanted to see Jesus. He was very curious. He was seeking Jesus to see him. But there are two more things that get in his way. His size and the crowd. Now, if I were to ask you, and there were several more young children in the first service, 
they all perked up when we got to this point. If I were to ask all of you, what's the one thing you would have known about Zacchaeus before this morning? It would have been that he was a wee little man, right? We all know that. Zacchaeus was height deprived. He was short. He was small. He was someone that was easily overlooked. The only relevance that that plays in this story is that his physical stature was sovereignly designed so that on this day in his life, he could not see over anyone. And it forced him to go somewhere else to see Jesus. Zacchaeus may have wished he was taller his whole life, but God knew what he was doing when he made Zacchaeus short. And he had a problem with the crowds. For the crowds were following Jesus everywhere he went, multitudes upon multitudes following Jesus, especially at this stage of his life. He had just recently raised Lazarus from the dead. He is with all of the Jews heading to Jerusalem. There is multitude upon multitude, thousands upon thousands of those who are following him and making their way through Jericho. So as Jesus, um, Zacchaeus decides to see Jesus, it's going to be difficult for him to see him because he's so short and because of all these other people. How is he going to get in the front row? How is he going to figure that out? Now, as a six foot two Gentile, I don't have that problem. I get asked all the time, honey, can you get that from the top shelf? Honey, can you store that? Can you? And I've never had a problem with being short. But if I put myself in Zacchaeus' situation and I wanted to see Jesus and I had what he had, what would I try to do? What would you try to do? If you were the rich chief tax collector in Jericho and you wanted to see Jesus, what would you do? I might try to throw my money around. I might try to see if I could buy a front row ticket. I might try to see if I could throw my influence. Maybe some political leaders would pay attention to me. I did have a little bit of control of some part of what was going on there. I might try to do all those things, but none of those would work for Zacchaeus. That's how much of an outcast he was. He had no friends. He had no contacts. And if he wanted to see Jesus, and if he wanted to be on the front row when he came through town, and he wanted to get around the crowd so that he could see him, his solution was to run ahead. And it says here in verse 4, he ran on ahead and climbed up into the sycamore tree. Now, I've got to tell you, no self-respecting Jew is going to hike up his robe and start running ahead just to see somebody in the crowd and then climb up in the tree, no less. But what this tells us about Zacchaeus is he was far beyond the whole dignity game. He was far beyond being concerned about what others thought of him on this issue. He was willing to pursue that by running on ahead regardless of what anybody thought of him. So by the time we get to the end of verse 4, boy, we've seen a lot of daunting limitations with Zacchaeus. 
on the surface, they would appear to be impossible limitations. He's ashamed to his family and his name. He's an unclean religious pariah, a social outcast. He's a tainted rich man whose wealth is really repugnant to those that are around him. And not only that, it's a barrier to the kingdom. He's physically unimposing and he's lacking in common dignity. There's one word that you could wrap all of that up in. Zacchaeus is lost. He's lost. That's the point Luke is trying to make. Zacchaeus is lost. He's the epitome of one who's never going to go to heaven. He's the last person in Jericho that anyone would think would meet the Messiah. But as we turn the corner and we move into verse 5, we see that Jesus didn't view Zacchaeus the way everybody else did. And this is where the section that I want to entitle the personal contact of a seeking Savior. The personal contact of a seeking Savior. And we begin with the perceptive Jesus. The perceptive Jesus. Make no mistake, Jesus knew exactly who Zacchaeus was, knew exactly what he was facing when he came to him. Verse 5 reads, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Zacchaeus called, excuse me, Jesus called Zacchaeus by his name. And he's about ready to give that name a whole lot more meaning than it's ever, ever carried. Jesus had a little bit of a different view of tax collectors than most of the people of that time did. In fact, Luke records that there's a pretty big contrast in the mind of what the religious leaders thought of tax collectors and what Jesus and his followers did. In fact, when John the Baptist is approached by the self-righteous Pharisees in chapter 3, he calls the Pharisees vipers, and he describes the tax collectors as those that are humbly seeking baptism and instruction on how to live. Jesus himself calls Matthew, the tax collector, to be one of his disciples. In fact, Jesus was known so much for this perspective on tax collectors that he was called a friend of tax collectors in Luke 7, 34, which placed Jesus in the category of being unclean as well. Tax collectors were described in chapter 15, verse 1, as coming near to him, to listen to him. Jesus' perspective in the kingdom perspective in Luke is not that tax collectors were unclean or that they needed to get a new job. They just needed to be saved. That was Jesus' perspective on tax collectors. And Jesus' view of rich was different than everybody else's view of rich. For rich, in that mindset, meant you were closer to God. You received God's blessing. When you go through Luke and you see how Luke describes rich, you don't walk away with that impression. 
But Jesus didn't see Zacchaeus' being wealthy or rich as a barrier. And that's why when the disciples asked him, how then can anyone be saved if the rich man can't be saved? His response was, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Zacchaeus' richness was not a barrier, but an opportunity. An opportunity. And all the barriers that on the surface would keep Zacchaeus from the Son of God were no concern to Christ. Not his name, not his occupation, not his wealth, not his stature, not his lack of dignity, not the crowds. Jesus was seeking him out. And he emphatically tells him to come down immediately. He cuts against the religious grain that would have had someone of Jesus who called himself um, the one who could, who would teach truth, who was the Messiah. That person would never have contact with a tax collector. But Jesus spoke to Zacchaeus and instructed him, nay, commanded him that he was going to come to his house that day. There was no option. And in speaking this, Jesus knew what the response was going to be, and we'll get to that here in a minute. He was breaking every religious and societal rule that was stacked up against those that were seen as being outside of the favor of Yahweh, when he even spoke to Zacchaeus, much less told him that he was going to come to his home. But he was fulfilling his purpose, a purpose to seek out the lost, a purpose that though Zacchaeus in that moment thought it was just to provide hospitality was far greater than he could have imagined. So what did Zacchaeus do? If Jesus is the first participant in this section, what does Zacchaeus the pariah do? Did he shrink away in fear? Did he ask for more time so he could go home and mow the lawn and pick up the laundry and make something to eat? Jesus told him that today he must stay at his house And what did Zacchaeus do? He received him gladly with joy. Jesus told him to hurry, and he hurried. Jesus told him to come down, and he came down. He did everything that Jesus asked him to do immediately and right away. You think Zacchaeus didn't know what type of person he was? You think he was just blind to the fact that nobody liked him? I don't think so. I think he knew exactly what it meant for somebody like Jesus to extend this command and invitation to spend time with him. But how heavy his conscience must have been as he walked home with Jesus behind him, knowing who he was and all that he had done. But there also must have been mixed in there at least a glimmer of hope for this man is willing to go against every other person in this town and at least want to spend time with me. 
And you see in verse 7 what the response was, what the people expected this to look like. For it says in, in verse 7, when they saw it, they all began to grumble. Isn't that not like the chorus of all disobedient Israelites from all time? Grumbling, saying, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. He was a sinner. He was unable to be saved. He was the lowest of the low. He wasn't even a Jew. He had no hope, no chance. Jesus is going to that house. There's no way Jesus can be who he claimed to be. There's no way he could be Messiah as he claimed to be. There's no way he could be uh, forgiving of sins or Lord of the Sabbath or have the ability to cast out demons in God's power because that type of person would not go to a tax collector's home. His action, Jesus' actions, drew the condemnation and spite of those that were watching, the crowds and no doubt the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And as we reach the end of verse 7, we see Zacchaeus is lost and Jesus is seeking. And Zacchaeus is responding to Jesus' seeking and the crowd is rejecting it. And then the story kind of stops. And we just move on forward to verse 8, as if nothing's happened. There's just kind of white space between verse 7 and verse 8, and we just keep on reading. But something happens between 7 and 8. We're not told what it was. It's kind of like reading a book or a movie, and a plot gets to the point where there's this dramatic event and stops. And when you're on the edge of your seat, the next scene unfolds and all you see is the result, but you don't see what connected the end of the last scene with the beginning of the next. You just see the result. And that's all we see in verse eight. We see the result. We know that Jesus went to Zacchaeus' home and we know something happened because all we have to do is look at what Zacchaeus says and what Jesus says following to know There is a change. There is a huge change in Zacchaeus. And this is the section we're calling the public confirmation of a spiritual conversion. The public confirmation of a spiritual conversion. First, we'll read what Zacchaeus said. Zacchaeus in verse 8 stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, have Of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Pretty clear, something happened to Zacchaeus. The evidence of the change is unmistakable. And we see first a change internally in him. Because when it says Zacchaeus stopped, that really doesn't give us the fullness of what it means. It almost makes it seem when you read that in the English that Jesus was following Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus just kind of stopped and turned around and had this conversation. The reality is it's better to understand it as he stood firm. 
Jesus has already been to his house. Now Zacchaeus is stepping out and making a public proclamation in front of everybody. He stood firm, and this is what he said. And the first word out of his mouth is, Behold. Now, he says, it's said to who? Lord, master, owner. It's said to the Lord. And Jesus wants, uh, Zacchaeus wants to explain how he has changed. He is initiating and acknowledging that his perspective is now different than when it was before. He's had an internal shift of loyalty, and now we're going to see external actions that demonstrate it. And he gladly does what the rich young ruler in chapter 18 refused to do. The first thing he says is, I will give to the poor. It's exactly what the rich young ruler was called to do, and he walked away. But Zacchaeus adopts God's view of the poor. And did you notice as I read that verse, how that just almost lined up exactly with what the Pharisees would have required for somebody to convert? He actually follows through on what would have been the impossible task by acknowledging, giving his goods to the poor, the leftover, above and beyond what he would have had to pay for those that he defrauded. And his view of his fraud was not just trying to get away with as little as he could, just the least amount imaginable. I'll pay you back 20% above what I took you and I'll make the decision. No, he judged his sin 20 times worse, four times what was taken. You come to me. The tax office used to be where I fleece you. Now you come to me and tell me what it was and I will pay it back. And above and beyond that, whatever's left over is going to go to the poor. Radical, radical transformation in his life. Evidence of saving faith. He is more concerned that Jesus walk away not stained by Zacchaeus' reputation than what Jesus' reputation adds to him. Zacchaeus realizes that now I'm a believer. This man, Jesus, is now my Savior. He is identified with me. I am going to obey him so that people are not going to look at Jesus and think less of him because I'm now supposed to be a believer, but what's the change? I ask you, when you repent, when you've publicly sinned, are you willing to go to the level that Zacchaeus is willing to go to demonstrate repentance? Are you willing to follow the pattern of 2 Corinthians 7, 11, the earnestness and vindication and indignation and zeal that follows the one who wants to avenge wrong? If you want a pattern of what repentance looks like, true repentance looks like, Zacchaeus is an example of that. But that's not the end. 
He was demonstrating repentance and genuine saving faith. But Jesus weighs in in verses 9 and 10. And first Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. If there's any doubt about Zacchaeus' spiritual predicament, Jesus weighs in and he removes it all. He removes it. This man is saved. These words would have been compassionate and confirming to Zacchaeus, and they would have been condemning to those who were there, but are obviously silenced. Zacchaeus is saved. And do you notice the grace of our Lord when it says that salvation has come to this house? The Jews that were so quick to lump in the family as being condemned if your father was a tax collector are now in stark contrast to the Savior who recognizes and washes over that condemnation by including all of Zacchaeus' house in this proclamation. What grace. What grace. The crowd, they would have had Zacchaeus make himself holy first. They would have had Zacchaeus clean himself up first. They would have had Zacchaeus make a profession first or adopt their morality first. That's not, that's not Jesus' way. Jesus does his work first. He saves us first. He redeems us first. He justifies us first so that faith and good works are an exercise or that we exercise are proof that salvation is real. The crowd thought they had the inside track to God. And Jesus calls Zacchaeus a son of Abraham. He is a son ethnically. These Jews wanted to make him even not even ethnically Jewish because of his vocation. He is a son of Abraham ethnically, included now in the heir as an heir of all of the promises given to God's people. But don't mistake, he's also a son of Abraham spiritually spiritually. Romans 2, 28 and 29 says that one who was a Jew is not one outwardly, but one inwardly, not one by circumcision of the flesh, but circumcision of the heart. What's the demonstration of this heart characteristic? It's faith. It's faith. That's what Zacchaeus was demonstrating. And Galatians 2, 7 says, therefore be sure that those who are of, of faith who are sons of Abraham. The outcast, Zacchaeus, is now the insider. The traitor is now the true son. So how does Jesus bring this to a conclusion? How does he wrap up this vignette? 
Well, he does it by stating what should be obvious to us by now. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, just an interesting note as we wrap up our time. Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man. I thought that was a little interesting to use that term. It's It's not an uncommon term in the New Testament, but there are several terms that are described Jesus. He could have been the Son of God, the Son of David. He uses Son of Man. What would have been in the mind of those Jews as they heard that term? Well, you don't have to turn there, but in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, Daniel writes of a reference of the Son of Man. Beginning in the middle of verse 13, it says, One like a Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. A kingdom. When Jews heard the term Son of Man, immediately in their mind, kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. In fact, if you look at verse 11, it says that at the end, that they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Jesus is saying, he's the son of man. I am going to be the fulfillment of Daniel 7. But this is what I've come for now. I've come not at this point to set up the kingdom, the permanent kingdom, I've come to seek and save the lost. Jesus came first to save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus was the authoritative king to be able to do this. He came to save his people from their sins. That's the reason why he had this divine appointment with Zacchaeus. That's the connection between Zacchaeus and Abraham. When the story began, Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus to see him. When the story ends, Jesus has sought him to save him. When the story began, Zacchaeus had the worst reputation in all of Jericho. He was a tax collector. When the story ends, he has the best title in all of the land. He is a son of Abraham. And in a few short days, after he has sought Zacchaeus and saved him, he would in obedience go to the cross according to the will of the Father, pay the price for all those sins that would have and ever had been committed by those that would be sought and saved. Jesus came to save lost sinners. He came to seek them out, forgive their sins, to cleanse them of their unrighteousness. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Salvation is possible for all who would repent and believe. Jesus seeks after those 
who understand their lostness, the humble and the humiliated, the poor in spirit, the ones who acknowledge that they can't save themselves. Jesus rejects those who've built their own religious system and want to justify themselves. He seeks and saves the lost. The story of Zacchaeus is no less than the fulfillment of what Jesus said in Luke 18, 27. The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Please bow with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that it is your will for your Son to pursue and save lost sinners. We know that in and of ourselves we are trapped in our flesh and bound to our sins. We're slaves of unrighteousness who can do nothing to please you. But because of your rich mercy and your great love, while we were in this condition, while we were dead in our sins like Zacchaeus, You saved us and you sought us through grace, through faith, as your gift to us. Lord, if there be any in this room who are not saved, may they not leave here today without understanding that Jesus is seeking them for a divine appointment today. He is pursuing those who would repent and believe. Father, in light of this truth, may we seek your glory, your honor, and your name above all else. We pray these things in the name of our seeking Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.